Hi, I'm Julianne. And I'm Erica. And this is Radical Healing. We gather stories from the Christian missionary community in Japan where we both grew up and talk to people about what it's like to navigate life after leaving that bubble. We interview alumni from our alma mater, the Christian Academy in Japan. We also talk to people who've had similar experiences of deconstructing and reconstructing their beliefs. By connecting with like minded people out there who felt silenced or alone in their experiences, we want to serve as a resource for healing. Welcome to another episode of Radical Healing. Today we have Chami Nagai here with us, and this is really special for me because. Chami and I have known each other for several years now, and we have gone on our own journeys in relation to the evangelical church. And we have been able to share with each other. And I've really appreciated Chami's presence and just listening ear as I figure things out. Um, so it's really cool to now be able to have this chat on, on our podcast. So Without further ado, welcome, Chami. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here because I've listened to all your episodes and here I am. <laughs> really? All of them? Thank yep, you. All of them. Mm-hmm. You're, we should give you some like VIP A status, prize. listener yeah. status. <laughs> <laughs> you can quiz me if you want. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't think we can remember. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very grateful to people who listen to listen at all and let alone listen to multiple episodes. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. They're great. So Chami, can you give us a quick self-introduction, uh, brief timeline of your life? Sure. I will try to keep it brief. <laughs> so currently I, I live in Yokohama and I work as a freelance yoga teacher. I'm 35 and finally feel okay saying I'm Japanese, um, though I, I've mostly said throughout my life that I'm a TCK. Um, I was born in Japan, have lived in six different countries, and I'm married to David, who's also kind of a global nomad like me. And <laughs> timeline, um, I'll just do it bullet point form because it's a little complicated. Um, so when I was little, my parents were in Taiwan for a few years as a teacher, And then um, when I was eight, they decided to move to Papua New Guinea to work with a mission organization as uh, teachers at an MK school. So we did that for four years. Then I came back and did most of junior high and high school in Japan. And then did my last year of high school in Iowa. And then went to the outskirts of Vancouver for my university. So that's my education. Um, and I studied linguistics, applied linguistics there on Tesla. And then I worked in Japan for a few years at a high school in a very rural area. And then went to Cambodia for three years and worked in a slum. <laughs> and then the tsunami happened. And so I moved to Miyagi to work on, yeah, more, uh, more on like the reconstruction um, stage of the the relief effort, um, mainly helping to start up uh, a social enterprise, which is where I met Julianne, um, hiring local women. And then, yeah, David and I got married, and then we moved to Yokohama about four and a half years ago. And that's where we are. 
There you go. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done for doing it, for encapsulating everything so briefly. I mean, there's so <laughs> you've lived such a rich, varied, you have so many interesting experiences. So we could just talk about like one phase of your life, probably for an entire <laughs> podcast. So it'll be hard for us to hone in on a particular part. Um, yeah. But uh, as for now, what is what does life look like for you now, today? What mm. are you doing? So today I am drinking decaf coffee and being interviewed on this podcast and not working because I am 36 weeks pregnant and <laughs> finally started my mat leave. So usually I'd be teaching yoga classes right now um, on Zoom because of this pandemic. But um, yeah, so daily life right now looks like waiting for the arrival of this baby but usually I yeah I have a couple classes a day teaching either group classes or one-on-one um, I also I've quit this job but I also up until recently used to work as a caregiver with people um, for people with cerebral palsy so that was also my side gig and teaching a little bit of English but not much so, so are you it. planning on uh, teaching again uh-huh oh um, uh, yeah yeah, for sure. So I, yeah, I mean, who knows what my body is going to be like and how it's going to heal. But I see yoga as a lifelong practice for myself. And also I, I love teaching yoga. So I hope to, yeah, get back into it once we're a little Will more settled. Will you take international uh, students? Oh, for can yoga. I join your, can I can Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I actually, um for, because I teach bilingually, um, and uh, because there's a lot of expats and people from different countries living in Yokohama. And because of the pandemic, I've had people who went back home um, join for the last year from like New York and Toronto and, and Seattle. And so, yeah, that's been fun. So, yeah, you're totally welcome to join. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so this can mean a lot of different things. I'm curious what this means for you. How do you see the world differently now as opposed to when you were growing up? Hmm. Yeah, I feel like there are so many different shades of it. It's not like, you know, this versus that. It's it's like, yeah, maybe like a collage or like, like different shades just changing over time. Um, but yeah, there are definitely drastic changes too. Um, so I was thinking about these questions and one thing I thought of is, First of all, like growing up, I felt, you know, pretty secure and confident in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. Um, and even though it is willingly that there was this sense of God's will that I had to follow. So this sense of like, I have no choice. <laughs> and I enjoyed the things that I thought God was telling me to do. So in a sense, it gave me a sense of purpose, but it, there was this like, Ultimately, it's not up to me, it's up to God, kind of a feeling. There's also a sense of like us versus them. So for me, yeah, growing up as a Christian and an MK who is Japanese is a very unique yeah. <laughs> um, identity, I guess. So first of all, like going overseas and kind of being immersed in this like international world with other you know, MKs and missionaries, but then coming back and being a complete minority in a very rural area in Nagano. And so for me, it was very much of like God against 
I don't know, ancestral worship or like、mm. God against, you know, culture. Like there were so many、mm. things that we weren't allowed to participate in. And actually, my family lived with my grandparents who had, you know, like very nominal ritualistic Buddhist Shinto ancestral worship mixed lifestyle, which I think a lot of people are familiar with if you're. If you've ever lived in Japan. And so, like, you know, praying at the dinner table was like a battle, <laughs> or,、oh. you know,、um, or like, I've actually never been to Hokamairi, like, to visit a gravesite. Yeah, we were in this, like, we were in Nagano City, but in a very rural, rural, traditional area. And, like, there was no one who spoke English, and I felt completely out of place. And I, I was just thrown into the regular Japanese school system. And, Felt different, but there's no significant markers, <laughs> as in, like, I look Japanese, I speak Japanese, I have a Japanese name, I have a Japanese family.、Um, and I had like no language to talk about why I felt different. And back then, I mean, even still now, like, MK, and I mean, evangelicalism is okay, Christianity <laughs> is not a You know, a big population in Japan and evangelicalism is even smaller. And then, like, MK world is even smaller. So, there's like no MK care, no support for re entry. So, I think I really struggled for years feeling like, yeah, like, why was I suffering and just having a really hard time in the school system?、Um, so, it wasn't just like minority. Like religiously or faith wise, but I was also feeling like a minority as in, like, I didn't belong and I wanted to go back, which was with the other, you know, international kids.、Mm. So, in a sense, did your classmates、mm, like notice like there's something very different about you? I mean, they knew that I was like, oh, she's the one that grew up overseas or like, you know, could speak English, but it, I, I felt like I was this interesting animal in a zoo and everyone was interested, but no one wanted to come and be my friend because it was this exotic animal in a cage.、Um, so that's how it started. And then, you know, junior high sucks for everyone, right? And it really sucked for me. So there's like a lot of like icky, like, I don't know, junior high girl stuff. And, So that was my junior high life. <laughs> so you went to Japanese school from what grade to what grade? So, tail end of grade six and then grade seven till the first semester of grade 11. So, about five years total, or a little less than actually. And yeah, I mean, I'm thankful because I'm completely biliterate.、Um, and like I've translated a lot. Back and forth, Japanese and English. So I think that solid foundation gave me the Japanese ability. Yeah. But it was also like torturous because I just wanted to get out. I didn't want to stay in Japan.、Yeah. It's so interesting to hear your story because the kind of stereotypical image of an MK is, you know, a white family, you know, white kid. So your experience, I think, is so unique. You really have foot in both. Cultures,、uh, multiple cultures simultaneously. And I imagine that there are very few Japanese MKs. I'm sure there are a community, but、um, it is re really rare to hear a story like yours. Phenotypically, you know, when you're white, you have just that visual presentation as being other or different.、Um, so people, I think, expect more of that otherness. But if you Uh, look the same and、uh, are you know, the same nationality, 
there's so many more layered complexities uh, when you when you don't fit that mold. Yeah, and so I, I think having like for me like this TCK or MK or um, like those kind of words or like God or Christianity, like those became even though like they were concepts, like they became something I clutched onto for a long time, probably in a not always healthy way because like I didn't, ha- I felt like I didn't have anything else to hold on to during that time. And no one told me about like the inner workings of reentry and like identity formation. And, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people who experience this. It's just like, I didn't know anyone. Mm. So you yeah. say now you call yourself Japanese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did that change happen? <laughs> yeah. So I think different things have contributed to it and I'll try to kind of fold it back into like, you know, how, how do I see things differently now compared to before? Cause I shared about what the world looked like before. Um, I think the tsunami was big. And, and at that time um, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian anymore. Um, even though I, recognize my Christian roots and my Christian spirituality kind of folding into what I'm building now. But back then when the tsunami happened to me, it was this like big outpouring of God's love for this nation um, that I've struggled to love. Like it was always this like battle. I'm like, okay, I will go back to Japan, but I hate it. I will go back to Japan, but I hate it. Like it was always that for the first time in my life, I felt like I, I felt this compassion for Japan and I had felt compassion for everywhere else except for Japan, which is why I was in Cambodia in a slum. But I think coming here and then also being able to work as kind of an outsider, but also an insider was really healing too. Because for the first time I started saying my name is Chami, which is, it's not my real name. It's a nickname I've had since I was a baby, but um, I've always just used my Japanese name, which is Nagai Migiwa um, in Japan. If I, you know, if I were a student, if I were working, but yeah, like in the disaster zone, there were just everyone from everywhere. And I was the bridge. So I worked as an interpreter between an American organization and the Japanese people. And I was able to kind of straddle both worlds. And I think that gave me a lot of healing to be able to say, okay, I don't fully belong here, but I am Japanese. And I can feel free and feel like I'm living a purposeful life. Um. And I think also, yeah, recognizing that, you know, life is, life is a journey <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's messy, um, but there is, I've, I felt like it's, it's always been trying to pick up the little pieces from the past and trying to make sense of it and moving on. And so the past hurt or the past differences I felt have kind of been enfolded into the sense of, okay, I'm Japanese, but I can be different and I am who I am. So a greater sense of who I am, especially coming into my 30s, have really helped me be like, okay, I can be who I am in this country and not feel like I have to be X, Y, and Z. And a paradigm I used for that, I think before was like, you know, you know, is this Christian or not? Or is God here or not? But now it's, or us versus them. But now it's a lot more of we, regardless of who you are. And also, where do I see life and freedom? So I critique the Japanese culture a lot in light of that question. I also critique Christianity a lot and yoga a lot from that question of where do I see life and freedom? And where I see it, I take it 
And what I don't, I kind of chuck it out. <laughs> and what I've kind of started to glean, I've it's like a part of me and I'm like, okay, I this is who I am and I will always be Japanese and that could change. The meaning could change over time, but I feel happy living here right now and feel settled and can be who I am and not be scared of fitting in or not fitting in, sorry. Do you want to talk a little bit more about your faith changes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, first of all, I love being in my 30s <laughs> and I've changed a lot in the last 10 years. And um, so, yeah, I, I grew up, my, both of my parents are first generation Christians, as they would say, like they found a lot of freedom and meaning in becoming a Christian. So I really, you know, I do honor and respect their story because I know where they came from. And I, I can't imagine if they had stayed where they were in in light of like cultural and yeah, societal boundaries. <laughs> Um, but because of it, you know, I grew up in a, like a really passionate Christian family where, you know, they became missionaries. Um, and actually, like, for the most part, I had, I, I fit in well with that whole Christian paradigm. Like, God loves me. I am loved. I feel secure. And I'm here to share God's love. Yay. <laughs> um, and, you know, just by tendency, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram, but I'm a two on the Enneagram which is a uh, need to be needed or a helper, which works great <laughs> in the Christian world. And also in a Japanese world where women are often expected to be that. Um, so I fit the gender role perfectly <laughs> and the, you know, religious culture. So, you know, it, it worked for me. I know it doesn't work for a lot of people, but it, it worked for me. And also, um, yeah, we we were part of like a charismatic church, so I had a lot of like very intense and mystical experiences with God, and I think that's actually still carried on into my yoga practice. So for that, I'm I'm thankful, even though there's a lot of stuff that's messed up about charismatic spirituality as well. Yeah, so in general, it you know it felt pretty solid. You know, I had some questions and doubts along the way because I hated being back in Japan. But on the most part, you know, like I said, the whole Christian identity was like my lifesaver. And then I went to college. And then that's where I started encountering. Um, well, first of all, that's where I, I think dismantled a lot of like, or I got out of the evangelical bubble. So it, you know, happened in increments, I started going to an Anglican church, um, got more involved in social ju justice kind of stuff. And like started questioning like what is like like we've built this us and them wrongly like which side would Jesus be on um so that's kind of what propelled me to go to the slums in Cambodia because I grew up on a big mission compound that was gated there are a thousand expats living in it so it's quite different from where you two grew up with like you know CAJ and Tokyo and you know, you're all like dispersed in Tokyo. Like we were consolidated into this one compound with guard dogs and security and like ID. Wow. And, you know, it, it was really strained at time security wise. And so, you know. This was I, in Papua New Guinea? 
Yeah, yeah, this was in Papua New Guinea. So yeah, even though it was just four years, it was just very much of like us and them. Mm-hmm. And so I think something like I, I remember, like that was where I saw rural poverty for the first time, where um, like a guy who worked for us said, you know, there's a drought and there's no food in the garden. Can you help us? Like I remember those moments. Um, so I encountered rural poverty there. And then in college, I encountered urban poverty in at Vancouver. And so I think both of those things kind of propelled me into the slums of Cambodia to kind of take down the us and them. Like I'm gonna jump in because that's where that's where Jesus would be. Um so and that was with an organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was with a group called Servants. And they are uh it is, yeah, a lot of people are from the evangelical background, but very social justice people and also very influenced by Catholic spirituality um, and, and very holistic. I, I'm still, you know, I still respect that group and am in touch with a lot of people from there. Um, so it was an intentional, like, group of Christians who lived in the slums and predominantly work with community development type work. Though some people worked in like churchy stuff, but um, yeah, in sectors like education or job development or health. Um, So those are kind of the things that people worked on. Who I get out of breath. <laughs> yeah, you, you've been talking a lot. So sorry. It's just been That's okay. Like, no, 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 no. We can. Yeah. Ah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think living in a slum where you encounter suffering every day, it makes you ask questions. Um, makes you ask questions about, yeah, suffering and where is God in all of this? Is there heaven and hell? Like all those kind of questions. And and then we oh so and then I went back to Miyagi to and ended up working with a very evangelical organization, very different from servants. And during that time, I felt like I put a bit of myself on hold for the sake of, you know, like fitting in. And, you know, I I knew how to do it. And it, it was also like, you know, a natural part of me to be this, you know. Christian woman who was able to to lead and serve and it felt quite natural and it was it felt meaningful because I was starting up uh, helping start up a social enterprise and hiring local women and all those things Um, but then this sense of like all of this doesn't matter if people didn't become Christian started to really bother me (laughs) because I really believed you know at by that time, it was like, you know, God is at work where wherever I see goodness. And so it wasn't this like people becoming Christian. So it was already there. You know, I already had that theology and not really, not really believing in hell anymore. And then um, I got married and then both my husband and I started this deep deconstruction process where we started um, actually articulating a lot of the things that have been brewing all along. And that's that coincided with the rise of Trump and recognizing that those things that we were questioning was actually fueling what was supporting Trump, even if people didn't realize it, um, whether it was, you know, the authority of the word of God or this, you know, sense of like us and them and heaven and hell. So we have to hold on to this or else we're going to perish, even if we support the most 
anti-Jesus person ever. (laughs) And it just didn't make sense. So we let go of that. Yeah, and at that time, it was still like, oh, we don't agree with evangelicalism. But um, we actually had a really painful experience of essentially being like not being allowed to stay on that team anymore for our belief. And that kind of propelled us into this post-Christian ministry life where we it wasn't this will of God. It's like, okay, what do we want to do? What should we do? And the last couple of years have been deconstructing to the place where we um I shouldn't speak for David, where I I I don't identify as a Christian, but I see how that's been incorporating into what I practice as my own spirituality. And so it's been reconstructing of myself and my spirituality in the last few years. That was long. Thank you. (laughs) That was a lot. Can I ask Juju? Yes. You were there Uh while Chani was deconstructing (laughs) and you were still religious. Like, what was your perception at the time? Um, Well, I was not fully aware for a part of it. Um, It was more towards the end where um, we were kind of unpacking this. But I think my orientation was like the path of least resistance. Like, okay, I don't want to create conflict. Um, I really identified with Chami and David and with their journey, but... I think because I, I maybe I was several steps behind you guys and I'm also very conflict averse too. So it was just like, okay, keep my head down, keep the peace, even though I had issues too with how things were handled. And then once Chami and David left, that kicks that helped propel my own deconstruction as well. Mm. But I just was, I think keeping things very private as well because yeah it's it's difficult because it was like our job you know (laughs) was our reason for being there I just think about if I were there I don't know if it's like a culture we were raised with or just my own weakness but I think I was always very threatened by anyone who was not Christian or especially who kind of fell away you know Like, I think I've always been really bothered by being around people I disagree with. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think even now I have that fault and I need to find my inner peace, you know, (laughs) I need to do more yoga, I guess. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just think about if like, if I had this like person who I knew who was like deconstructing, I think I would have really freaked out and been like afraid or threatened. But it sounds like for you, Juju, you were like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a thing. <laughs> yeah. And I, the reason why I joined Megumi Project in large part was because of Chami and I really admired her spiritual, like her, her version of Christian spirituality. I'm like, oh, you know, if this is what missionary work can look like I can be a part of this I think I gave um, you the wrong impression sorry that was the whole story <laughs> I was also trying to walk the, t- <laughs> the line the fine line 
I mean, it's all incremental, right? Like, you know, we can't, when we're so in that world and worldview, you can't go from zero to a hundred or, you know, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all baby steps, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but your, your spirituality was very different. It had a very different flavor, which I found attractive. I think the social justice focus and that kind of open-mindedness um, mm which I found attractive. So, and you're also very smart and like um, creative and, you know, you're a very cool person. So I was just like, oh, this is, you know, Chami's a cool Christian, cool Christian. So, (laughs) (laughs) and then that's how our journey started. (laughs) Yeah. And just recognizing the vulnerability of, yeah, when your work is funded by a ministry, and your faith but like what happened was ultimately we were asked like well if you don't believe in the word of god like what do you use or the authority of the word of god what what do you use as a you know sounding board for what is truth and what do you do when people you know want to commit their lives to god it was all you know in evangelicalism the word of god like written in the form of the bible inspired 100% is is so important and and with that kind of a worldview, like it, it, it is, um, yeah, it, it does feel vulnerable when that's your life, that's your community, that's your income. And so just, just wanting to say like, Julianne, also like we felt bad for you because you were like stuck between us and the team leaders and there is vulnerability. And I think there is strength in having David with me. Like I just having someone who like was on the same page and we could talk about things freely. Yeah. And so if I were alone, would I have gone it at that time in how it happened? Like, I don't know if I could have done it. Um, so, you know, being on the fringe is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I th- and I think that's why it's so hard for many people who are in ministry positions to leave the faith when your oh, whole yeah. career, your income, you know, your family security is tied up with the doctrine, then it really discourages any type of questioning, which is, you know, if you're already, if things are starting to unravel for you, it's so harmful for your mental health to have to stay in that. And I think there's way more people, you know, than it seems who are stuck in that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And lack of community is huge and we still struggle with it. You know, like we've lost some friends because of our stance and, um, and also just like being out of the Christian world. It's like, where do you find community? <laughs> right? Um, yeah. We need so. like other places that are sort of like churches, but. I don't know, different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like for me, yoga has been life-saving in that way. I've also been practicing with like a mindfulness group, which is all about practice and not about belief. Um, um, so that's, you know, things like that, but slowly finding those kind of pockets mm. to be a part of. Yeah. I wonder if it's harder to find the type of close-knit community, like church-like community, I don't know. I, I feel like because people are so busy in Japan and maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe for some like hobby type groups, 
Mm-hmm. Those uh, connections can go really deep over time, but it takes time, and you have yeah. to have some type of like external like hobby that you are bound together by. <laughs> Um, yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it might be different, like it might change as we have a kid. Um, I'm also scared of having like really shallow friendship with like mommy friends. <laughs> like I'm like, I want real, like meaningful, deep relationship <laughs> where we can talk about, you know, the mess of life and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think Japan is also just, yeah, a really lonely place to live in. And it's been hard at times. I feel like finally, you know, four and a half years into our life here, starting to feel like, okay, we know some people and we know who we can reach out to. Um, but it's in Yokohama. Work. Mm-hmm, in Yokohama. But yeah, it's still a work in progress and recognizing like we just receive different things from different people. You know, we can't receive everything from this one tight group of people. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> shifting gears a bit, do you identify as a TCK and how do you feel about that term? Mm. Yeah. So actually I've never thought of the, the issue of using word TCK or expat. And that's just been one thing that I've been mulling over as I've listened to all your episodes. And it's been interesting to see who identifies as a TCK and who doesn't. And for me, I think the word TCK still is important and identifies a TCK because I don't have any other word to explain who I am. And it's been a helpful paradigm for me. And also, I am not white and I didn't, you know, move. Well, we are in a similar box (laughs) in that we, 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 you know, we rode the, the, the wave of, you know, similar like religious colonialism as we were missionaries, you know, so, so there is that. It's not like I can be like, I'm not white. I, I'm free of all of this. I can't say that. <laughs> but um, there is a sense of being minority here in Japan um, and not, yeah, I, I guess not necessarily having this, like, I am better than you because I am an expat. So, so maybe it's a little bit different from, if I would have grown up in an international school in Japan with other white kids. Yeah. So like sometimes I've used the word global nomad or just, just to explain, you know, like I am a mix of different cultures and I belong in both worlds, but I also don't belong in either completely. And that's okay. And I feel like that concept is, and can be carried into like whoever, whether you have, Maybe you're an adult who like moved somewhere as an adult and then like have lived in that country for many years, or you are, you know, you're a refugee or you are a migrant worker, whoever you are. I, I do like talking about identity because I do think it, it helps us understand who we are um, and come to terms with who we are. So long story short, yeah, I, I do identify as an as a TCK, but really also have appreciated the critical reflection on the issue of words around expat and TCK and this like us, it could potentially create this us versus them mentality. Can I ask, when you were growing up, did your parents consider you to be like regular Japanese or did they, I guess, recognize like your different or different from them yeah I don't think they did 
And I don't think they fully understood. And, you know, fair enough, like they're, they lived overseas for, you know, I think seven years total, Taiwan and Papua New Guinea, but they're Japanese and they, you know, <laughs> probably had no idea that having their kids grow up overseas will make them into something that is not fully Japanese. So we have actually haven't talked a ton about it,、um, but I don't think they really knew or understood our struggle or my struggle as a TCK.、Um, but I'm sure they were also struggling being back in Japan. And we're Japanese, we just didn't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Did you struggle at all with like、uh, remembering Japanese when you came back? No, actually, for that, I am really thankful because both my parents are teachers and they went to teach Japanese kids. And、um, in Papua New Guinea, they had a really strong program called Mother Tongue Studies, where you were taken out of the English, regular English program, and got to study with a teacher from your native country. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, not a lot. And, and I think it got harder once, like, if you were in high school, you might have had a hard time keeping up. But I also did a lot of correspondence works. Essentially, I did school in two languages for four years.、Mm. So when I came back, I suffered in a lot of ways, but never academically, language wise.、Um, so, yeah, for that, I'm thankful that my parents kind of forced us to do it. I also read a lot of books. I was a、mm. book girl. So I read and read in both languages. The school in Papua New Guinea was it specifically for Japanese missionary kids? Mm-mm. So it was with Wycliffe Bible Translators.、Um, so that's who my parents were with. So it was a big MK school, but there were maybe, I don't know, 15 Japanese kids total from K to 12. And so my parents went to teach those kids,、oh. um, including us. And then they ended up teaching other stuff too. But it was、uh, predominantly American, but it, I think maybe like 11 or 12 countries represented at this school. So, why did you choose applied linguistics to study?、Ah. <laughs> Actually, had a lot to do with that background. Because, I mean, what 18 year old knows what applied linguistics is, right? It's not about learning multiple languages, <laughs> it's, it's about learning how to decipher a language. Break it down.、Um, and actually, I went to a private Christian college called Trinity Western, and their program was actually in partnership with Wycliffe. So, part of it, like I knew what it was, but I also, like, as a kid growing up in PNG, we, we had some time to do like village living experiences and being immersed in local culture before we moved to the compound. And I loved it. Like, I just have really like happy memories of running around with local kids. Barefooted and learning how to dance and like writing down words. Like, I was an eight year old, like writing down words and writing kinship charts, like who's related to who, like anthropology essentially. <laughs> so, I think. What's the I name think, of the language they speak that's like a pidgin language or like a Creole?、Mm, Tokpisin.、Okay. Tokpisin is, yeah, is the, the, Not、uh, maybe it is no, it is the national language. Tokpisin and Motu are two languages. So, I, I, mean, I, I guess I picked up a little bit of Tokpisin. Initially,、um, and then the compound was all in English, obviously. But yeah, I really liked it. So I knew, like, I really liked languages. And so I just stuck, I just went with applied linguistics. And then TESOL was an afterthought, but it's, you know, it's just a useful tool to have. So you got your bachelor's in applied linguistics. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about any other terms that 
might reflect your experience. And in, in Japan, um, the, the word kikokushijo is used mm. to uh, <laughs> yeah. describe Japanese kids who lived abroad and come back to Japan.、Um, yeah. But it's my impression is that it's, it's mainly like business or diplomat、mm-hmm. kids.、Um, a lot of times, they, I mean, they probably went to Nihon Jingaku, like in their、mm-hmm. school abroad or in the yeah, country abroad.、Um, and it, also, I feel like it has a bit of an elite. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.、Um, so I was just thinking, oh, yeah, that word would not that would not help Chami、um, much because of her very unique experience、uh, as a missionary kid and、um, also, yeah, growing up in or living, spending time in Papua New Guinea is is not the typical Kikokushijo experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, I really wanted to go to like, you know, I don't, places where there were Kikokushijo, but also like felt different. And also, yeah, as I grew up, I realized like what the, what, like how people see Kikokushijo.、Um, and I, I remember like telling people, I grew up overseas, but my parents aren't rich. <laughs> like I remember saying that a lot. <laughs> like you will not believe how we didn't have money. <laughs> Because as soon as you say you grew up overseas or you're Kikokushijo, like most people assume that you're really well off and you've had a really, you know, posh lifestyle and you speak English because you lived in a Western country, you know. So I've, <laughs> I've had to try to figure out a way to try to explain that. And people are like, what is missionary? Right. So it, it is, like you said, Julianne, hard to explain that. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe your. Parents work to your friends at, ja- at the Japanese public school? You know what? I don't know what I used to say because I was definitely like, I am not ashamed of my faith. Like, I, you know, I remember there were times when I had like a Bible sitting on my desk and just thinking, if anyone asks, I'm going to share. You know, I would, I'm th- I would be the one that would invite my friends to like youth group stuff.、Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe I, I did say they were missionaries,、um, or if that was hard to explain, like they were ki- kind of like more like they went as teachers.、Um, and so maybe I would say, you know, they were teachers at a school for missionary kids or something. I don't remember actually. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. I was thinking that. I'm happy that you are claiming your Japanese identity、uh, because I think there is the narrative in Japan of you o k n what w what, what, what is Japanese-ness is very tightly defined. And there is you know, that us and them、uh, dichotomy there too. Like you look this way and you, you know, speak this way and you have these set of values. Therefore, you're Japanese. But in、mm. reality, you know, there's so many people who are you know, in Japan who are Korean, you know, who have assimilated to Japan, or you know, Brazilian, or、um, many mixed people.、Um, and I'm tired of the gatekeeping that happens、mm-hmm. where people say, oh, you know, you're, you're gaijin, or you don't, you're not Japanese enough to claim. Japan, your Japanese identity, but then I think that's just becoming untenable when there's so much 
more diversity now, even though it's maybe more, it's, it's kind of under the surface or, you know, you have to dig a bit to see it, but it's definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look forward to that. I, the definition of Japanese-ness expanding. And I think for me as a mixed person, I don't feel Japanese enough to claim my Japanese identity a lot. I kind of pushed down that part of me, but recognizing, you know, there's so many other people in a similar boat and we have right to claim that as our identity, even though we don't fit this tight definition of Japanese-ness. Yeah, absolutely. And our child is going to look like you. <laughs> He's going to be half white and half Japanese. And, and I think I will probably have to grapple with it a lot more um, once he starts questioning his identity in Japan, because it won't be easy, but I think it will be easier than when I was growing up. And also we have a, a family culture of being able to talk about it and understand each other. So I think, I mean, I hope that is a support that we can navigate it together as a family. And also Yokohama is a lot more diverse than where I grew up, a lot more diverse. So, yeah. Get ready for a lot of strangers approaching you to tell you how cute your baby is. (laughs) They're already telling me that I'm going to have a cute baby. Uh. (laughs) Like, you haven't seen him yet. I haven't seen him yet. (laughs) So let's talk about healing. <clears throat> for you, Chami, what does that look like for you? What does radical healing look like? And if you have mm-hmm. any resources that you would like to recommend, please feel yeah. free to share. So I was thinking about this word radical healing. And um, I think for most people, people identify the word radical as or understand the word radical as being like, you know, revolutionary or something that is, you know, profoundly different or thorough. Um, But actually, when I first moved here, I have this like theme of the year thing. And the theme was um, radical freedom. And for me, radical meant actually being rooted. So if you look at the root meaning of the word radical, I actually looked it up yesterday, just to make sure I wasn't just making it up. But it is from the word Latin word radix, which means um, relating to or proceeding from a root. So for me, when I wrote that, um, or when I came up with the phrase radical freedom, the word radical was actually literally being close to the earth. Um, And yeah, I think claiming my Japanese identity is, is also maybe a part of it, but also like literally having practices that help me become more become closer to the cycle of the earth and also menstrual cycle, um, which I guess I haven't talked about it till now, but it's, it is part of my spirituality and yoga practice, which is a very embodied body physical form practice. And, and I think growing up in an evangelical and charismatic background, like the body and the earth were completely not regarded as, as, as important unless it was about healing. Right. Um, and so this idea of, you know, growing up in a place where there was a vacuum of this understanding of like radical or being rooted to be like, this is actually my pathway to healing. So I, like we live next to a beautiful park. So like I would be in the park a lot and I finally started to connect to my body in a way that I hadn't known before through my practice of yoga. 
and like really understanding like what is my body trying to tell me what do I feel in my body um, menstrual cycle awareness was a huge gift in that I learned to um, cycle with my body um, and recognize that there are change of energy depending on which part of the cycle I am in. And instead of trying to like plow through for efficiency or for productivity, I am actually invited to rest um, or to actually be okay with this angry energy rising. Like I don't need to suppress it. Um, so welcoming the different energies in me. Um, yeah. So healing through those kind of practices, predominantly body-based practice like yoga um, and menstrual cycle awareness. And then also like mindfulness practice. It's very much like now based. So I've been really attracted by like modern Buddhism where um, there's teachings by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist teacher who talks, teaches about mindfulness as, as literally like just becoming aware of, of, of the things around you and, and being able to connect with the gifts of life around you here and now in this moment through your breath and through everything that you do. And so um, not being interested in anything about afterlife that has nothing that, you know, is disconnected from the body. Like for me, this is like the truth uh, barometer. It's like, is this body-based? Is this earth-based? Is this now-based? Is this going to help us lean more into healing and freedom now? So leaning into those practices have been healing for me because I've been able to reconstruct spirituality and practice that, um, yeah, is beyond Christianity and influenced by it, but also not bound by it and influenced by other practices of faith. Yeah, so that's what radical healing has been for me. Oh, and actually like being able to incorporate some things I used to do. So I'm like, now I'm not as triggered anymore by, um, yeah, like I I grew up writing worship songs and then like I, that was done. But then recently I've been able to like sing them again, sometimes changing the words, but also recognizing the the same essence of mysticism or closeness or freedom that I felt when I wrote them as I do now. It's just, I may not be singing it to this God figure, um, but there is still a sense of um, authenticity. Um, so incorporating the past instead of um, just sitting in a puddle of broken bits and pieces, which was me for a long time <laughs> of deconstruction. Um you want me to go on with the resources as well? Can we just like pause? I have one question. Mm -hmm. Do you think, okay, so yeah, obviously there's like resources and practices, but like, I wonder if it just takes time. Yeah. You know, like maybe there's things you can do to speed it up or, or, or hinder it. But like, I think, you know, like you said, sort of this like, for a long time, just hearing some Christian music or any reminder of Christianity would make me like, like, I don't like mm -hmm. that. You know, mm -hmm. that just bugs me. Um, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, I wonder if that's just like, you need to have some time to, I don't know, 
I guess, mature out of that almost to the point where you can not be so bothered by it anymore because, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you've sort of settled into this is who I am. And so things that are things, things can't kind of push me or affect me as much. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think time is necessary. But I also know people who like kind of shove it all aside and don't deal with it and walk away. And then the healing doesn't happen either. So I think time, but also having a safe space to process, I think has been really important for me. So for me, that's meant like with my husband, but also like with friends that we have intentionally sought out who were kind of on the same journey or who we felt safe to share with. We've shared a lot with Julianne (laughs) as well. Um, So I think being able to talk about it, like, you know, in times of grief or sorrow or anger, just letting that come out, letting that be. Um, And then also, yeah, being exposed to different people and their different spirituality and, and learning from them and being invited into it has also, you know, been healing for me. So time and also I think intentionality. I feel like it's been a really intentional process in the last five years or so. Um, that's also how I'm wired. I'm a very intense, intentional person. Um, but yeah, that's how it, it panned out for me. Probably not for everyone. And, you know, for some people, it'll take a lot longer and maybe um, to get to a place of not being triggered by certain things, or it's been so, so painful and so harmful that they just will never, ever go anywhere near. And that's totally understandable as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, for us, like, yeah, we're, I just one day, I'm like, I can sing Christmas songs without being triggered. Like that was... <laughs> I like I can sing joy to the Lord without sorry joy to the world and sing words like Lord without like cringing at it and just be like oh this is just a Christmas song I can enjoy singing <laughs> so that was my mark of like oh okay I'm I'm okay with it yeah and the intentionality makes sense for you Chami with your just your personality and then also yeah. thinking like your um you were in um a missions like ministry world and so that was your life in a lot of ways it was your world um your community um Mm -hmm. and just thinking for compared to someone who had more of a casual relationship with christianity maybe that Mm -hmm. intentionality is not as needed or it, mm-hmm. this doesn't make as much sense but just thinking what a, it was a radical shift for you to transition mm-hmm. out of these worlds to where you are now yeah yeah that that is true and like so I had to do that to survive for myself because I put so many like I had put everything in it so I had to figure out a way to like get all of it out and and sort of through it but if if my life had been a little more like dispersed with different um, ideas or different communities. And yeah, I, I think it would have looked different. I think you're right. It was very circumstantial for me. Mm. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I was very, like I was very much into Christianity. I don't know mm-hmm. if I was like very spiritual. 
like what is spirituality? I don't know. But <laughs> I think after leaving Christianity, I was like, I have no desire to interact with any kind of spirituality, regardless of whether if it's Christian or religious or not religious. Mm. Um, I read the book, uh, Emergent Strategy. Um, that's what it's called, right? Um, have you all heard of it? Mm-mm. It was like a huge thing. Like last year, everyone was reading it mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me to read because it was super like kind of spiritual in a, not in a religious way, but just in like a, you know, spiritual way, I guess. And, and I didn't like it. So I wonder like, is part of my healing going to be going back to uh, spirituality or am I just forever <laughs> a spiritual mm. um did you what what do you think what's what's in your future <laughs> oh regarding like spirituality yeah i don't i don't have a clearly defined um reconstructed idea yet but just i think the basics of like nature that is where I experience the most spirituality, I would say. I mean, it's it's like such a common answer, um, but I, it's it can be common because they're true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do and, you feel like a ick, icky feeling when you're around like very spiritual books or people or even when they're songs? not Christian? Yeah, yeah. I think I have that reaction. I think. I'm still pretty much um, like a materialist. Like I love science and if things don't fit within science, I am, I, I think I, I still have that reaction of yeah, resistance. So mm-hmm. I, I don't like certain types of self-help um, mm. genres, but I also know that there is a lot of mystery in life too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense to hold space for mystery. Um, but I think because of my where I've come from, like things like science are very reassuring. You know, it makes sense. Mm. And not to say that like science is limiting because science really expands your understanding amazingly, you know. So um, seeing the expansiveness within science and the mysteries within science, too. It sounds like I'm a science nerd. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that as, as a, as approach to life, you know, mm-hmm. um, where, yeah. Where else do I find spirituality? Just those basic girl response, love <laughs> relationships, <laughs> you know, all that. It's very human. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm. If you have not read Emergent Strategy, can you please read it and then give me your impression? I'm just really <laughs> curious to hear. I want to read it. What you would think it's of interesting. it. Okay, Juju, I also want your impression too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's inspired by Octavia Butler's Kendra. It's very Shut like up. multiple genre. It's not a, like it's not a typical book. Mm. Um. Mm. What were your resources that you wanted to recommend? 
Um, yeah, so so obviously resources that have been helpful for me um, might not be helpful for everyone, but menstrual cycle awareness is what I just um, was sharing about. Um, and this is also for people who don't bleed um, and also for people who identify as a woman who may not have a uterus or a womb. So um, it is an inclusive practice. And um, my friend Megan Noreen, um, she is a coach, and so I've really benefited from her community. So you can look her up if you're interested. Um, also, yeah, mindfulness practices. Um, uh, I think I mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, but Plum Village is a it's a mindfulness community. And what I love about it is it's it's about practice and it's not about belief. And so I've really enjoyed um, joining their sessions where we like eat together and we sit together and we walk together and it's all meditation, but like very like earthy meditations. It's not like to get out of this earth, but it's like being really amazed at or like not even amazed, being very mindful of where you are. And in that sense, the world becomes alive. So I I have appreciated that practice. Um, yeah. Yoga. So I've studied with the tradition of Kripalu yoga. Um, and they're they're like a really good blend of like Western psychology and Eastern um, mysticism. So it's not just like all out there, <laughs> but it's also not just like yoga is for fitness. <laughs> I feel like it's a really good blend. Um, also, I love listening to On Being. <laughs> that's that's kind of been like my I don't know spiritual resource for the last several years and listening to a lot of different people talk about you know like different genres of conversations and what it means to be human essentially so that's yeah those are some things that have really helped me is on being that podcast with that woman Brene Brown Krista Krista Tippett oh okay Mm, Brene Brown has been on it and Brene Brown's podcast is also also great but yeah Krista Tippett's yeah on being they also have like a poetry podcast as well and I love that as well yeah cool we'll link to that in the show notes for the episode okay was there anything else you wanted to add Chami uh I feel really alive and free and happy to be where I am and I hope to change until the day I die because that's how we, you know, that's how we keep evolving as human beings and as a society and as a planet. So that's my hope. And yeah, I, I think sometimes you feel alone if you feel like stuck or mm. you're deconstructing and it's, it's like a black hole, right? And so just to be like, it's hard work, but there's also a lot of beautiful things. Um, and I think a lot of people who's been on this podcast can attest to you know what's on the other side Mm. in a sense um whatever that looks like for you so yeah just wanting to say that for anyone out there who feels alone that there is freedom and you're not alone thank you welcome thanks for letting me talk for a long time I loved it. Yeah, I'm so happy that you came on the podcast. Cool. Well, thanks again. I hope you have uh, a good rest of your mat leave and look forward to baby pics. Yeah. And this new chapter of your life as a as a mama. Yeah. It's a complete unknown, but I'm very excited about it. 
Yeah. It's Take so care. nice to meet you finally. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Now I have a face behind the voice I hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I love that you and Juliana are doing this together. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's beautiful you guys have created. And I'm sure it's healing for both of you, but also like healing for so many CAJ people um, across the world. Yeah, when we were doing, starting, uh, just talking about starting the podcast, I kept on saying, I want to interview Chatting and David. Yeah. Like from the beginning. We can finally make it happen. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I am honored. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who'd like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or Radical Healing and what that looks like for you. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at RadicalHealingPod at gmail.com.